0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by B. John Namadi on June 13th, Lord's Day Service. Okay, hi everybody. So, um, the next four weeks, um, I was asked, and um, I'm actually pretty honored to be asked, uh, to, to, to do a series on apologetics. And um, what typically would, we would do is the make, make the case for apologetics, why we do apologetics, and you know, what's the scriptural basis. I'm actually going to skip that, because a lot of people have heard that multiple times. But, so I'm just going to basically um, demonstrate by, by um, giving a number of talks that I've made for this purpose that I've used at universities, and uh, when we were in Southern California, I would kind of make the circuit giving these talks at different colleges and universities. And the the, the real message of most of these talks, you know, you can use apologetics for different purposes. Uh, You know, you can, a debate could could have an apologetics aspect, Uh, you know, one-on-one evangelism can have an apologetics aspect. Uh, so, so there's really apologetics is big field and it's got a big taxonomy, lots of kinds and purposes. The main message that underlies most of what these talks are going to be about is that, contrary to the culture's uh, attitude and statement, that we don't need God to explain the created order. In fact, we do. And and so it's a modest statement. It's not like uh, I have then proven everything in the Bible. It's nothing like that. But it is that it puts a little pebble in the shoe of the materialist and the atheist. And that's just a modest goal, and so that's all that these are. Now most of the time when I give talks, I uh, because I do astrophysics, so my my main kind of uh, sort of staple talk is one on extrasolar planets. But um, because of some scheduling issues, I'm actually gonna skip that first talk, which is my usual spiel, uh, and go to something that's kind of out of my field, actually, it's philosophy. But, uh, so so we're, gonna, we're gonna basically, you know, uh, and so you can see what somebody does even when they talk about something they don't know anything about. So we'll see how that goes. So this talk, though, I have given even um, at Caltech. Uh, so this, uh, usually the way this kind of thing works is there are Christian student groups or uh, you know Christian organizations or faculty clubs or whatever, and they will sponsor a talk and then they invite a speaker so this is kind of think of it that way, so just kind of with that little introduction in mind that's this talk was called and it has sort of a uh, sort of a academic kind of sounding title limits of Int- Re- limits of reductionism uh, it kind of sounds kind of like this just Pure academic, but it's got a very direct thing it goes, and it becomes very Christian by the end, just entirely Christian. So it just draws you in, and then and then does it. So I'm going to try to do that, uh, and there is uh, occasionally there will be a little bit of an interactive element to the talk. So and in fact, it starts that way. So um, this talk again is about reductionism. It's a particular kind of philosophy about the nature of how we describe reality. So. I'm gonna start with asking a question. What is reality made of? If I ask that question and flash the picture like that, that's like a supernova remnant. And I said, what is reality made of? What, what, would, you, what would it kind of make you think I'm trying to say? Matter, matter, matter. matter energy, mm-hmm. things like that. If I then showed you that picture too, what would you say? What is in reality? What, beauty. Beauty is in reality. There is an aspect that that butterfly's wing on that pretty little twig with the the leaves and the flowers captures that. I mean, there's beauty in that picture of the supernova remnant. But there is a special beauty in this one that doesn't look random. It looks gratuitously beautiful. And then if I showed you that, what other aspect are we looking at? Relationships, love, family, you know, that wasn't captured in the supernova remnant. So that we experience life in a many diverse aspects. We don't experience just a material, energy force, energy force. You know, you know that that is not our relate our, our the way we interact to to the, to the, to, the, to the created order, to the world. In fact, um, there's a and a lot of this talk is borrowed from Roy Clouser's book called "The Myth of Re- Religious Neutrality," that I think is quite good. And 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 Roy. Klauser, who's following a Dutch Reformed philosopher Herman Dooyeweerd, um, basically uh, talks about uh, a list. And in, I'm sorry that the brightness is not very very high, but the a list of the aspects that you could come up with. And this is not a like the best list. There could be other lists that would better. But the list kind of goes something like this. At the most primitive level, reality can have, for example, what we would call a numerical aspect. You know. The thing exists, I can count it. Here, one, it's right here, two, th- There's right there. Then there could be a spatial aspect, It could be a temporal aspect, things move in time and space. On top of that, there could be, let's say, a kinetic aspect, that, that's the motion, or the physical aspect, which has to do with forces. But then you get more sophisticated. Some things are active in the biotic aspects. An amoeba cell you know, is, is biotic, it has a biological function. That the rock didn't have, and then above that, you know, a worm has a sensory aspect, uh, so it actually senses, you know, things, um, and you can go up, and it gets more and more complex until you get into, you know, logical, historical, linguistic, social, economic, aesthetic, justicial, ethical, fiduciary, you know, basically confidence and and faith in each other, and and that kind of thing. So. We live life in all of these aspects. We're not just little automata or anything, you know, particles that are interacting the way a proton might react to an electron or something like that. So we live life, life like that. But when we do science, we go the other way. And we, we do something that's called reductionism. And reductionism is uh, sort of a divide and conquer approach. In a divide-and-conquer approach, you say, look, I know everything's complicated. And the aggregate, which means collectives of things, are really all that we see. You know, we don't see protons. We just see you know, maybe Avogadro number of protons, you know, that about 10 to the 23 of them in a cup of water. You know, so then we, but that's very complicated. So I will just break it down to this atomic picture, and just talk about one little bit. And I'll just say that thing is like I don't even want to know what it looks like. I'll just say it's a dot, and let me just kind of work at like that because I can't solve the equations beyond that. And that's what the physicists have done. And um, except I lost my place. Oh yeah. So 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 working. So I've already said that. So then um, that that actually does work, and that is uh, you know, what people have done. Now when people do that, it's a kind of reductionism that's called methodological reductionism. It means, look, I admit that the world is very complicated and I have no idea what's going on, but let me just kind of do the, the simple thing so I can actually solve a problem. And when we talk about orbits of planets, think about the orbit of the planet Earth around the sun. What, is the, what does the Earth look like? If you say a sphere, I'd say you're wrong because it's not a sphere, it's actually oblate. And then if you say it's an oblate sphere, I'd say you're wrong, because it's not an oblate sphere, there's mountains, and it's not exactly an oblate sphere. You see where I'm going? And then there's waves, and the waves actually go like this, right there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the waves are going up there. That changes the shape of the the planet and its gravitational forces. So we're always making approximations, we're always making, we couldn't possibly get started if we couldn't make approximations. And that's what methodological rational uh, reductionism does, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just all you have to do. But then there's a philosophical version of this that we would call the ontological reductionism. And in the ontological reductionism, now suddenly you're trying to attempt to explain all of our experience based on of its few aspects. In other words, now you're saying, no, no, actually, that is all there is. I said it was atoms. Just give me the atomic picture. But now I'm telling you, in fact, that's all there is. And that, the moment you do that, now, now those are fighting words. And now we have to talk. Uh, and so, so let's, let me kind of go over mythological reductionism a little bit. I mentioned gravity. You know, like When you think about how that worked, there was, for centuries, people observed the motions of the planets. And uh, they could see there's order in the motion. It just doesn't do random things. It does certain things at a certain time of the year. And then they saw other phenomena like uh, apples falling on physicists heads uh, but they weren't seeming very related um, until newton came along and said you know all we have to do is assume that there is this universal attraction between any two objects in the universe any two objects a and b c and d a and c and each one of them each pair uh, basically it experiences a force that is inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them so if you double the distance it, it becomes four times the force and if you double the, the masses it becomes you know four times the force and that little law that will explain the apple falling on my head it will all explain all the planet orbits and <laughs> just mag- magnificent and that was very powerful it just did everything it was so powerful of course Newton also had to invent calculus to then solve this equation so that was a minor extra detail but but in terms of the l- fundamental law and by the way in this thing this is just the mass in pounds or kilograms or whatever you like r is in meters or feet whatever you like there is one constant that you have to tune and a theory is good when it doesn't have too many of these tuned parameters it's just when, give me one number and I'll explain all the planets if you just tell me where they are that's a powerful theory, and that's what this was. And so it was, in some ways, it was so spectacularly successful that it revolutionized the Enlightenment period. And this, this it went this, this trend to this modernist picture that, oh, everything is just law, 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 law everywhere because this simple law explained everything. In fact, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, basically, uh, you know, said based on that, I can even tell you how planets formed. You know, there'll be aggregates of dust and these things would form spinning disks and the spinning disks would then gravitationally collapse and then form these rocky objects that over time would form planets and if you look at the modern theory of planet formation It's still hundreds of years old. It's just modern versions of this thing But it was that powerful what Newton was doing that you could explain credibly many things so somebody can tell you then uh, you know, look what we're doing. Here's the Concorde. Look at the complexity of that. You know, we are, you know, going faster than the speed of sound. We are in the moon. We're doing all this stuff all with the reductionism. What's your problem? And the thing that we want to say in response to that is just remember, folks, how we started. We're making approximations that the physical world is available to us as a set of approximations. And I have my own anecdote. I was an undergraduate freshman physics student and we were solving problems of balls bouncing. And we had to like, you know, how far does it go up? You know, know, what shape does it have? And that's a parabola. And that assumes that the gravity vector is a constant. No matter where the ball is, it sees the same vector, just pointing straight down. And then just like near the final, we're gonna take the final or something, or one of our major tests, and I'm sitting there waiting for my, test p- p- paper to come and the professor walks and I said, Professor Dreitler, I, I think I've realized that that's not right because it's not a parabola, it has to be an ellipse because the gravity vector is not really going. He said, you're wrong. He said, you'll always be wrong. <laughs> and what he meant was, if you want to play that game, <laughs> just, just turning it to an ellipse isn't perfect either. And, and then he said this thing that has become sort of, I, it's very small font there, but basically I've carried all my life physics is the art of approximation. It's not that we don't know that it's an ellipse. It's that that if we keep doing things in the complicated way, you know, things are very hard to do, so we make these approximations. And that was actually a very powerful concept, just to remember. All of these things that we do and do that, we did it with a bunch of approximations. That nature doesn't provide to us everything without residue. There is still stuff we don't know. Okay, but, in, in a second answer to this is that that methodological reduction is, is powerful, but now let's see what happens if you really want to have the hubris to become ontological about it. If you become ontological, for example, one version of ontological reductionism would be materialism. That says uh, uh, basically, uh, so I'm sorry, I'm one slide ahead of myself. So in the ontological reductionism, what we're talking about is what is the origin and essence of everything. Anytime you say we're all nothing but, and then you fill in the blank, you have you're you're engaging in ontological reductionism because you're saying our essence is nothing but, and then you can say what you like to say for that. We're, you know, well, you know. And there are two levels of this. Uh, there's sort of the less uh, haughty version called the weak ontological reductionism that says ultimately we're nothing but. You know, we're just. And then there's the the strong one, which is exclusive, that says that not that just that at the bottom the source of all the different aspects is this, but that in fact there is no other aspect. And I'll explain that in a moment. You'll see how crazy it gets. So one major example uh, dominant in our culture is the materialist picture. That says that we're all particles and forces, you know, quarks and leptons and field gauge bosons I'm just throwing fancy physics words, but basically the par- basic particles of of, of of nature, and and so that everything is determined by particles and the forces acting by particles. That's basically the underlying assumption of most academics. That's what they really think. Okay, and so, um, but then they in fact go further and they say that everything, including our minds, are are uh, you know uh, governed by that. And so here's a clip. Uh, with Will Will Provine, who has now passed away, but uh, in the movie Expelled, which is a good
1: No gods, no life after death, no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no human free will are all deeply connected to an, an evolutionary perspective. You're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and that's all there is to it. Dr. Will Provine, Professor of the History of Biology at Cornell University gave us another disturbing glimpse into where Darwinism can lead. Oh, I was a Christian, but I never heard anything about evolution because it was illegal to teach it in Tennessee. Dr. Provine's first biology professor changed all that. He started talking about evolution as if it had no design in it whatsoever. And I came up to him and I said, you've left out the most important part. And he said, if you feel the same way at the end of one quarter, I want you to stand up in front of the students in this class and tell them this deep lack in evolution. And I read that book so carefully, I could find no sign of there being any design whatsoever in evolution. And I immediately began to doubt the existence of the deity but it starts by giving up an active deity. Then it gives up the hope that there's any life after death. When you give those two up, the rest of it follows fairly easily. You give up the hope that there's an imminent morality. And finally, there's no human free will. If you believe in evolution, you can't hope for there being any free will. There's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning in human life we live we die
0: and we're gone we're absolutely gone when we die Doc? that'll be enough <laughs> uh, okay cheery cheery thought um and so so what he's saying is in a way uh, i was at cornell when when provine was particularly at his height and so i saw a bunch of debates between provine and Philip Johnson, and actually between my pastor and Provine, that really emboldened this young fellow who is, you know, postdoc and very timid. Um, but uh, Provine was actually more honest. He was he was actually chiding his colleagues to say, "You folks are pretending there's morality within an atheistic frame framework. There is none. You you have to admit that there is no free will. There is no morality. There's nothing. It's just particles." You know, and so, um, and in fact, uh, this this now I'm going to take it one notch up further. The strong form of ontological materialism, that form of reductionism, that's materialism. In fact, it's called eliminative materialism, which says that the mental realm doesn't even exist. It's not that the mental realm could be explained by the physical realm; it's that it doesn't exist. So that you end up with a statement like. Uh, all of our thoughts, convictions, desires, intentions, and decisions are actually fictions. So, here is um, uh, Nicholas Humphrey from Cambridge, a ph- psychologist, that says, Our starting assumption as scientists ought to be that on, at, on some level, consciousness has to be an illusion. The reason is obvious. If nothing in the physical world can have the features that consciousness seems to have, then consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. Huh. All right. Do you see the problem with that? Uh, I, I mean, it, what is when you talk about something being a fiction, where is it a fiction in? It's in your consciousness. So he's begging the very question, the very thing he's saying doesn't exist. He needs it just to finish his sentence. Uh, in fact, this other guy who's not a, you know, I think he's an atheist and, you know, pretty much a reductionist himself, is reacting to that guy by saying the denial of consciousness is surely the strangest thing that has ever happened in the whole history of human thought. It shows that the power of human credulity is unlimited, that the capacity of human minds to be gripped by theory, by faith is truly unbounded. It reveals the deepest irrationality of the human mind. So you know you start with wanting to go, do away with uh, you know God. So you, you posit this world that is material, and then along the way you lose a theory of consciousness, but you still hold on to that. So it reminds me of this Charlie Brown cartoon which I first saw as a 10-year-old. Uh, so, uh, let's see, L- Lucy and Linus. Lucy says, hey, well, look, um, a big yellow butterfly. It's unusual to see one this time of the year, unless, of course, they flew up from Brazil. I'll bet that's it. They do that sometimes, you know. They they fly up from Brazil and they and they go, "This is no butterfly; it's a potato chip." <laughs> and she goes, "Well, I'll be so it is. I wonder how a potato chip got up, cut up all the way here from Brazil." <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have to give it up at some point. The theory that this thing is from Brazil, you know. <laughs> all right. Um, so, but, but we we kind of picked on materialism because it's so dominant. But there are other forms of materialism uh, of reductionism. Uh, basically uh, the the material world and putting that at the center was uh was what we called materialism and the modernists in the enlightenment era you know touting science and fact and 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 reason you know that that's supreme they really were big on that and they thought things like the arts and you know the artists and the novelists you know they don't know anything so in reaction to that were the romantics and the idealists said actually you know what buddy Uh, you don't know anything except what's in your brain in fact you have the only perception thing you have is your perception how do you know there's even an object outside can not it be a useful fiction in your brain as far as you know couldn't you just be a thinking little blob of matter or not even matter you're just thinking something you're just making this all up you don't know that there is a chair over there So the idealists really pushed back hard, saying, no, you're saying creativity doesn't exist? No, I tell you, I tell you, that's the only thing that exists. You don't exist. (laughs) And so, so this kind of fight between the Romantics and the Modernists has continued on to this day, because the Romantics are today's postmodernists. The postmodernists, remember, are the folks who gave us the machinery for woke ideology. The woke ideology ultimately is is postmodern, and so while this this stuff, by the way, all of this stuff percolates. They start at the Ivy Leagues. They start at the Harvards and MITs, and Stanford's, and they come down from Cambridge and Oxford, and they, because that's where the professors who get the jobs at the big state schools, University of Alabama, well, mostly like Ohio State University, Chicago, you know. Those big universities, those professors don't get their jobs unless they came from one of the top four or five. That's where you get them. Then they they train all the second tier colleges. And they can train all the professors that get the jobs in the third tier colleges. And so what happens is the few elites at the top come up with an idea, as crazy as it might be, in, in one decade. And the next decade, you see it kind of, you know, going to the next tier. And by two or three decades, something as crazy as, you know, some of this postmodern stuff has permeated the entire culture. Everybody's getting it. But it starts at the top. So those academics, with their esoteric terminology and wording and everything, watch what they're doing. Because 30 years from now, just watch, um, among us, how much we're having to deal with critical race theory and and woke uh, ideas right now. It, 30 years ago, it was just you know, a little thing in the a bud you know, at these academic places. So just a little uh, piece of opinion there, but anyway. Um, so the postmodern idea, basically, true, in the postmodern idea, truth is defined now as a social construction. And, and so the commu- every community has its view of truth. And, uh, and you can't, if you're not part of my community, you can't judge my assertions about the truth. You see how now tribal? How tribal the idea of the truth is, and that's where you get ideas like uh, you know even like you know that like science is rape or math is rape. I mean, you hear these kinds of crazy words, and it's because you are attempting to assert your white you know whatever uh, picture of the world. On, you want know, to ram it down my throat, and I'm not ready for that, or I'm not going to take it because that's not my my discourse community. You see, and so so even science that we just talked about, from you know in this disjointed way of thinking, on the one hand we tout science, and on the other hand we say it's a social construction. Only that's all it is. Um, so that any attempt, as you say, that you say you, you hold to objective truth, and of course Christianity wants to hold to objective, objective truth, is now considered nothing but an attempt uh, to in, for one interpretive community like Christians. To, or uh, modernists even, uh, to ram down their ideas down you know, uh, the throat of others. All right, so, so we talked about two schools of thought, very diametrically opposed, right? The materialist says, everything is nothing but physical phenomena, materials and forces. The, um, the postmodernist says, no, actually, the only social forces are the only things that are, that are real. But what is Christianity, what is Christianity's position? Christianity's position, the biblical position, we assert that there is absolute truth. There is an objective truth, the way the materialist would say. The materialist does assert that there is an objective truth. But we also agree with the uh, postmodernist in that so far as to say, but the human reason is fallible, and so we don't get it all right. A community could get it not right, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist it's in the mind of God that it's true. I just can get it wrong. I can get my Bible wrong and I can get my science wrong. So, so we have to be humble as we're trying to un, you know, understand truth. We have to have procedures in place to correct each other and, 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 and get at God's true truth, right? You know, that's the way the Christian thinks. So in some ways we can understand the postmodernist and also see their fallacy. And we can understand the materialists and see their fallacy, whereas they are like completely opposed to each other. All right, so now we've talked about these kind of isms and and we're gonna talk some more. Uh, How do we evaluate it? Now imagine like you are talking to a Muslim and they assert to a transcendent creator. They assert that the world was created. They're not materialists. They're not postmodernists, let's say. And now you go, well, how do we tell which one is right? And that, can, that requires some work to, dis, to kind of make the case, the apologetic case. But sometimes theories do you a favor and self-destruct. All reductionist theories self-destruct and so we don't even have to bother with them. So, so I'll see, show you how that works. A minimum criterion for any theory or any philosophy is that it has to be philosophically coherent. And coherence means uh, that, uh, you know, it's, a theory is incoherent if it has a flaw that causes it to blow itself up. Um, other terms that people use are self-defeating self-defe- or absurdity. Let's go for one. There is a kind of refer- uh, incoherence called self-referential incoherence. And in self referentially co- incoherent brief, uh, belief is one that sort of makes a claim that undercuts itself. For example, somebody says, I tell you, I'm lying. Okay, you're lying then is this a lie too? therefore you're not lying you see it just kind of breaks itself if you're if you're asserting you're lying you broke yourself and so there are strong and weak versions of this for example in the strong version uh, gosh you guys can't read this I am so sorry I'll have to work on my colors and fonts uh, the Taoist one that it says in the red it says nothing can be said of the Tao well, if nothing can be said of the Tao, you just said something about the Tao. So is what you're saying true? If that's what you're saying, then nothing can be said of the Tao. Which then, you see, that, that statement is incoherent. It can't even live by itself. Uh, in the weak case, it just puts a doubt on itself. Uh, Sigmund Freud, for example, said I'm going to kind of squint and read it every belief is a product of the believer's unconscious emotional needs. Every belief is a product of the believer's unconscious emotional needs. Well, Mr. Freud, <laughs> how about this one? <laughs> uh, what unconscious emotional need of yours uh, are we talking about when you say this? So if every belief is that way, so it must be that way about this. So that's a self-referential incoherence. There, there could be a an, an kind of um, uh, incoherence that's sometimes called the self-assumptive or uh, uh, incoherence, which is the incoherence in the assumptions you have to make. So a theory is incoherent that way, if we have to assume it kind of incompatible with something we have to assume in order to just accept the statement. So for example, if I told you that only physical things are real, only physical phenomena are real, okay, that's actually commonly thought, right? Commonly thought that only things that are real are particles and forces. Well, but that statement is not an interaction between particles. The statement, only part of physical, are real, has a, is linguistic in nature, has a logical value, could be true or false, but it's got a logical, and, no, and particles don't know, don't know about logic, particles don't know about language, and yet you use language, you used logic to say that they don't exist. And so, you know, the assumptions I had to make to actually even just understand your sentence, uh, negate your sentence, so it's incoherent. <clears throat> So, um, for example, a fun one, uh, you can, you know, I remember in college seeing that on the bathroom wall, question authority. That was, that was the 70s. And then somebody else wrote, is that an order? <laughs> 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 so that's an incoherent statement too. Um, so there's also a self-performative incoherence, a co- incoherence in the, just in the performance of it. Of it uh. so, so like, if, if you, uh, the means of a production of a theory itself may be contradicted in, in just by asserting it. Now, an example of that is um, I do not exist. Well, uh, by the very fact that you spoke those words, you just, you know, you can't possibly be right, you know. Or I cannot uh, speak a word of English. That's a joke, of course, we always do. I can't speak a word of English. Uh, I mean, I do that in German, like anyway. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that's kind of funny, you know, because, but you just did. Uh, here's actually somebody seriously saying something like that. This is Jean-Francois Littard. Uh, he's a postmodernist. He says, there is no possibility that language games can be unified or totalized by in any meta discourse. Okay, there is no possibility that language games, language games, now you see what, you know, the, the postmodernist is saying, you're playing language games, actually. These are, this is not really asserting absolute truth. These are language games. And there's no possibility that those language games can be unified or totalized so that everybody should believe it in any meta discourse. Now, forget meta discourse for now, but he just did that, right? He just made this grand overarching statement that will hold to everybody. In the the very act of making that sentence, he he negated himself and destroyed himself. And that's, so that's when the theory does, Favor for you, you don't have to even take it seriously. Really, at that point, there's nothing to do. Here are some uh, <clears throat> kinds of reductionism and the way they 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 fall into these traps. So Marx, Marx says truth claims are nothing but rationalizations of economic interests. Laws are created by the rich in order to protect their property. Religion is the opiate of the people, placating the poor with false promises of an after happy afterlife. But then you would say, except the raw font is red. Uh, <clears throat> uh, what about this truth claim is, um, is uh, you know, what economic, ration, economic interest of yours led you to believe this or to say this? So if you are right, then your own statement falls under that category, and, and therefore it's not right. Here's another one, Nietzsche, <clears throat> all human action, all human action. That word all is the one that really kills it. All human action is driven by a will, will to power. Morality is uh, invented by the weak to give them leverage over the strong. Religion is a holy lie used to control people. Um, But then (coughs) uh, shouldn't we assume assume that your own theory then must be driven by your will to power, Mr. Nietzsche? Um, BF Skinner, um, humans are nothing but stimulus response mechanisms responding to rewards and punishments. So all we're doing is just responding to like these pigeons that they were he was experimenting with, you know, <clears throat> they would peck at levers to get their food. So all we do, all of our behavior, is just trying to get what we want, by just, you know, we, we conform. But if that's true, Mr. Skinner, um, what kind of uh, response were you wanting that they made you make this statement, since your statement can't have an objective value, since you just told us that not, no such thing exists? And you can see what's happening, there's a kind of a pattern and the pattern is that reductionist worldviews are self-refuting in a very particular way. You can almost turn it into a theorem. Any theory that reduces everything to only this thing, like economic self-interest, you know, materialism, whatever you like, necessarily then does that to human reasoning. Because if everything is that way, so is human reasoning. But if human reasoning is that way, that's where ideas come from. And therefore, the, that's also where your idea just came from. And so the moment you say that, you have just shot yourself. It's just reductionism just almost almost always automatically kills itself when you're ontologically reductionist. If you had been humble and said, look, I know, I know, reality is much more complicated, but just let me pretend that it's this way, and I can come up with some patterns that can be helpful. That's OK. We can live with that. But when you just make that assertion that we're nothing but, you run into this trap. Okay." All right, so now we're gonna change the topic and go into a little bit of a theory of religious belief that will end up being kind of related to this. So we're gonna go from, we talked about ontology, which is the part of philosophy that talks about the essence of things, to epistemology, which is the part of philosophy that talks about how do you know things, you know, how do you know things that are true? Where do you get your knowledge from? So like knowledge, actually what's that? Knowledge is justified belief okay so you may you may believe that it's gonna it's gonna be sunny this afternoon and you say that because every time because like Rodney every time you say it's not going to be it rains <laughs> or, you know, but the thing you were saying just before <laughs> that that you may be right but you're wrong or right for the wrong reason <laughs> and and so uh, <clears throat> so so you can have belief that is true but it's true for the wrong reasons you you, you know every time the cat walks under the, the ladder it rains outside you know something like that but then you could have belief that is true because of the right reason that's knowledge you know that's sort of uh, the theory of epistemology having given that now let's talk about what is religious knowledge or religious belief and uh this a christian uh, Reformed philosopher named um, roy clauser writes a book on on um on religious neutrality, which he shoots down, that there is no such thing as new religious neutrality. And he, he defines what religion is, and, and it's a kind of a long discourse. So I'm gonna tell you what his conclusion is. It, it is a, a religious belief, as a belief in something, as an unconditionally non-dependent reality. That is, that is a divine, he calls it the divine, he uses the word divine, meaning that in a system of thought which doesn't owe its existence to anything else. So, for us believers, the Lord, the Creator of the universe, He is divine. He doesn't owe His existence to anything else. But if you are a materialist, which used to be called uh, pagan, by the way, that not a derogatory word here. Let me see if I can just kind of go. Oh, I'm, I'm two, three slides ahead. You will see that <clears throat> they have a different idea of who the divine is. But now there's divine. Like if you think of the Greek divines, the gods, the Greek gods they sometimes owe their existence to something higher even still. So whatever is in that theory, in that system of thought, is the one that is really self-existent, that doesn't owe its existence to anything else. Uh, Klauser calls it the divine per se. You know, it's just divine, fully divine in that system of thought. And so the divine per se uh, is the thing that you want to kind of find out what is, uh, uh, you know, what is that in everyone. And so what it implies is that the religious belief is unavoidable. You cannot, away, because the religious belief is always there, because the, every system of thought, including Richard Dawkins' uh, materialism, uh, he has a divine, per se. The divine, per se, for him, is the material world. It's materials it's particles. They, they don't owe their existence or anything in his thinking. And so you end up with different kinds of worldviews. You end up with, I'll just get up here, you end up with, you know, the, in the reductionist worldview, the, the all of reality is, we'll just say, non-divine. But a piece of reality, let's say, an aspect of reality, like the particles, the forces, that begets everything in in in, in uh, uh, that you that you experience. The Scholastics, and these were Christians, just baptized that view by saying, okay, well, there is God, uh, he created. The particles and forces, or these simple, you know, uh, attributes of nature, and they do control everything. They are they are, they do explain everything. So that when you talk to a theistic evolutionist or some proponent of let's say biologos, that's how they are thinking. They are they're completely happy with the reductionist picture of reality. They just say God made that, okay. Um, but in fact, I, I, I would assert, and and Klauser would assert. The truly biblical worldview, and you know, and 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 what you definitely get out of Colossians for 3:15, for example, he's the image of the invisible God; he's firstborn over all creation. All things were created for him by him. You know, once you see that picture, it's a different picture, really. Technically, it is the divine, is the Creator, and Christ, and all of the existence, all of everything, is is outside of him. He created everything, and so that's really a Truly different view, and because he created everything you see, he has the freedom to create it in all the aspects he wants. He can make the material aspect, the fiduciary aspect, the linguistic aspect—you know, all of those. He doesn't have to reduce. He can make it so that the physical aspect has this relationship to the fiduciary aspect. You know, all of the laws of God now can. There's room for them all. You don't have to do these funny reductionisms. You know. And so when you do reductionism, you know, uh, when you want to go away from God, let me kind of say this too, I'm kind of deviating from my tongue, but the, 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 the temptation to reduce comes from the fact that you've done away with the creator of the universe, the creator of, of the Bible, who is omnipotent and omniscient, and he can do everything he wants. He can create laws, he can do everything. He can make very complicated laws. He doesn't have to worry about it. But if you are saying he doesn't exist, it's very hard to believe you unless you say, look, it's all actually very simple. It's just matter, okay? It's just matter. And and see, that I can believe you for a minute because you're just saying, oh, this, this little thing can explain everything. But the price you had to pay to do away with God was to deny the existence of all those other aspects. And then I'm going to show you, as we've seen it already, that you fall on your face. You, you can't even get off of this, your statement, much less you know, really have a real theory of reality. So the, there's a big price you pay for reductionism. And so in a Christian epistemology, in a Christian theory of how we know things, you see, we believe that the transcendent creator spoke the whole universe into his being, and he was free to then pre-create all the aspects. Okay? And um, so in a biblical epistemology, human reason is no longer reducible. We were made in God's image. Our reason can be very, you know, it's not just matter. It's not just stimulus response. It's not, it is what God meant it to be. And therefore it is unbounded in terms of, it's only bounded by what God allowed us to know. Uh, You know, whatever he wanted us to be able to do, we can do. And so we are not bound by any such rules that we would have made. So that the intelligible universe, uh, order of the universe, the fact that it's intelligible reflects the mind of the creator. Because God understands the universe and God can tell us what we can know. Um, So our minds correspond with that order of reality. So for example, here's a famous statement from Einstein. It says, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Now, it's a very, I mean, you know, in a way, I changed the slides the way it looked, because in in normal culture, you put a picture of the holy one there, Einstein, and you put whatever else, that just means it's true, because the guy with the big hair, you know, said that. But in fact, in a way he's right, but he's right only because he has confined himself to a reductionist worldview. Yes, in a reductionist worldview, why should you be able to comprehend the universe? Why should you, as a product of Darwinian evolution, which is only a set of fitness improvements, allow you to understand the deeper mysteries of the universe? From a Darwinian perspective, all I need to be able to do is to be able to club to death all my competitors and then make as, you know, do as much reproduction as I can. That's all I need to do for a Darwinian picture. All these things that God has put in our hearts and minds, go away in a Darwinian picture. And then you shouldn't be able to explain why you can do general relativity or special relativity that he discovered, you see. Um, on the other hand, here's a Christian view. Alvin Plantinga, Adequatio intellectus adram. Beth taught me how to say it this morning. Uh, so I, those of you in classical uh, education, so you probably could help me with this. But it says the intellect is adequate to reality. So the Alvin Plantinga, by the way, is one of these amazing Christians. He is, uh, he, there are you know, articles by atheist philosophers that say this man has essentially changed the field of philosophy for the worse because, because now it's fashionable to be a theist in philosophy because of the work of Alvin Plantinga over his little 20, 30 years. In, you know, and, uh, so here, one of his statements is God created both us and our world in such a way that there is a certain fit or match between the world and our cognitive faculties so what he's saying is God created the world and he also created our minds to be able to understand that world to the extent that he wants us to understand it and and there is you know for the Christian that just there is no contradiction everything makes sense you see because we have the transcendent Creator so we talked about how the self-destructive aspect of these theories. Now we're going to go into about what reductionism, especially ontological reductionism, does to the dignity of human beings. In Genesis, we read, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And that, to us, basically, is the basis, the imago Dei is the basis for everything that you think of in normal society that, that we think are our ideals, treating everybody fairly, loving others as yourself, you know, as you would yourself. Uh, you know, if you were saying, you know, you shouldn't, you know, be this and that and that, you shouldn't be a racist because he was made in God's image just like you, you are brothers. You know, those are, that's the fundamental basis for that. Without it, we don't have it, you, you know this. And so, so the Christian view of dignity of man just falls beautifully off of who God is. Um, But now what do do, uh, atheists like Richard Rorty say? Richard Rorty says uh, Darwinian evolution cannot be the source of human rights where the weak are left behind. Darwinian evolution cannot be the source of human rights where the weak are left behind. Universal human rights is a concept that is derived from religious claims that human beings are made in the image of God this Jewish and Christian element in our tradition is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists like myself. <laughs> he was at least honest, you know, yeah. So basically, he, he like Provine says, look, we don't really have a basis for human rights. We don't. And, and so, there it is. So, um, the denigration of man occurs, uh, you know, as a result of, of reductionism. So our Christian understanding is God made humanity in his own image. But when we do away with God and replace Him with some aspect in reality, we also reduce uh, humanity to an aspect of reality. And so when we reduce humans to an aspect, when we reduce them from all that God had made them, uh, then we denigrate them. Then we allow for suffering and we treat them as less than human. Notable example, reductionism to race under Nazism, you know, they, the, an individual's race was set to determine their views, their, their, their character, even their worth. And in that kind of philosophy, this kind of thing can happen. So Christianity sees the world really in its, all its aspects, in all its colors, you see, and, and, and it's big enough to really explain what we experience. Uh, you know, the materialists, you know, uh, to the materialists we say, yes, God did create, a uh, you know a natural a material universe uh, he even pronounced it very good uh, within its limitations materialism can tell us a great deal about the physical universe we acknowledge that we agree with you to that far to the rationalists, we say God did create the world with a rationally, rationally knowable structure so that the rationality that you are excited about is real God made that God made your brain so that you could do that Um, To the empiricist, which we didn't discuss today, uh, you know, who talks about everything as sense perceptions, you know, if I don't sense it, then it's not real. We'd say that we do have a world where the sensory aspect exists. God gave us sensory dimension. And he equipped us with these senses so that we can interact with the world. To the romanticist, we say God did create the world, uh, human beings, as just more than just complex, you know, mechanisms. We are real. We have freedom. Of mind and we have creativity so we agree with you too but none of you guys agree with each other but our view coherently accepts all of this because each one of you got a little bit of reality right but but not because you're reductionists you can't get it all right so the world is big enough our worldview as Christians is big enough to to really see the tapestry of all of our existence you know and for that we can praise God that 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 is really the, the, the heritage we have from him, that the Christian worldview provides a coherent picture of everything we exist uh, that exists around us. Lord... Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. <laughs>